Chapter One, Part B, Women of America by John Bruce Larris. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. The red civilization of the East was fairly constant. Between the highest and the lowest of the tribes, there was but little difference. The Delawares of the Lakes, the Hurons, the Senecas, the Potomacs, and all the rest of the innumerable tribes which inhabited the country east of the Alleghanies, as well as those dwelling in the Mississippi Valley, showed but little variation of civilization. In the West, however, it was widely different. It was true that there were on the plains many great tribes, such as the Sioux, the Pawnees, the Utahs, the Apaches, and others too numerous to specify, who were general status in the role of civilization was a very slightly varying average but there were also tribes which touched in the highest and lowest points of amaranth culture as an example of the latter mention need be made only of the paiutes or digger indians a tribe as degraded as the australian aborigines themselves the paiutes were the most abject and wretched of all american indians they lived chiefly on roots whence their common name among the whites and sometimes on offal yet even among these degraded people there existed even up to a comparatively late period a spirit of tribal devotion at least if the story be true that is related of them and which as it deals with women is here reproduced without pronouncement upon its entire credibility it is or was said that as the product of the chase were of great importance to these people it was necessary that they should be armed with the most effective weapons in their reach and so they contrived a peculiarly deadly poison with which to tip their small arrows this poison was so noxious that its distillation from the plant which furnished it a plant was of secret and known only to the diggers always resulted in the death of the person preparing the decoction it would naturally be thought that the poison of the individual who was to prepare the yearly stock for poison for the tribe was one that would be shunned but on the contrary there was an annual contest between the oldest squaws for the honor of becoming the sacrifice for the welfare of the tribe and the successful competitor proudly gave her life that the rest might live for this story though cited from good authority one may well decline to vouch but it is probably not untrue since it is essentially of the indian spirit be this as it may the paiutes unquestionably represented the most degraded aspect of indian existence and nature on the other hand there were the yumas often called the apaches and the maricopas both agricultural tribes and most probably at one time dwellers in adobe houses they understood the principles of irrigation and attained a high degree of indian culture yet more remarkable in this respect were the navajo whose name is said to signify large cornfields and to have arisen from the extensive agriculture practised by the tribe when they were first discovered by the spaniards in fifteen forty one they lived in large dwellings partly subterranean tilled the soil 
irrigated their fields by means of artificial watercourses or aqueuses and generally displayed all the signs of the highest type of primitive civilization again there were the pueblo indians as they are generally known the term is really ambiguous and probably includes many different tribes and even stocks being given indiscriminately to the inhabitants of the ruined towns which have been found throughout arizona and the adjacent territory while the civilization of these town dwellers was most probably local rather than racial an accident of situation and propinquity it was none the less decided now among such tribes in the most advanced state of red civilization the status of women was of necessity somewhat different even from that which she had enjoyed among the sioux comanches or other of the great tent-dwelling peoples among the navajo who are chosen for example as being in many respects typical the son followed the gens of his mother the matriarchal system being in full force while among the sarcees a kindred tribe the mother-in-law was held in such respect that the husband of her daughter could not sit at meat with her or even touch her without rendering himself amenable to a fine yet polygamy existed among the navajo and marriage by purchase was the rule moreover if we are to believe the accounts of the early explorers of the west among all the southern tribes marital affection was practically unknown the wife was a mere slave and in some of the tribes so lax was the marital tie that it was not uncommon for friends to exchange wives in token of amity so it would seem that the status of woman contrary to the general rule was higher where the outer signs of civilization were less marked except in the case of nahanis a tribe of eastern alaska there is no known instance of a western gens being ruled by a woman though on the other hand there seems to be little doubt that among the navajo whose religion was somewhat of the nature of that practised by the aztecs with which race they were indeed associated in stock women at times bore a prominent part in the service of the gods in the ceremonial of the rites and even in the reading of omens conceding due consideration to the difficulty of formulating any general theory for the different tribes even of the same scope of culture it would yet seem certain that woman's place among the western amaranths was far inferior to that held by her in the east yet among the house dwellers such as the pueblo and the navajo her lot must have been in material matters easier than that of her eastern sister in the agricultural nations we find the men doing the heavier portion of the labor incident to the cultivation of the soil though the women probably acted as sowers gleaners and the like as do the peasant women of europe to this day on the whole it is evident that the women of the advanced western tribes were inferior in general status but superior in ease of lot to their sisters of the atlantic slope it is now time to turn from the picture of the aboriginal woman as she stood at the time of the coming of the first settlers and trace as far back as possible by general rule the influences exerted upon her status by contact with the incoming civilization of the east 
it is in the consequences of this influence that we may find an explanation of the lowering of the status of the amaranth woman for the effect of that inroad of civilization was for long distinctly inimical to the development of the indian how far the theory of our culture was applicable to the needs of the amaranth can be only a subject of speculation for the errors of application that the theory debarred the indians from participation in any benefits which they might have received thereunder the imperfect generalization which had been applied to the study of the american indian is most conspicuous in error in its failure to take into account of the marked degradation which ensued in the indian character after the settlement of the country by the whites it is not necessary or practicable here to trace the witness of this degradation in full strength but it can be seen evidence in the failure of the indian woman to maintain her status either of position or of character we may indeed find a queen esther after the establishment of the colonists as owners of the country but we never again see a pocahontas under the incursions of a civilization which assumed its most repugnant form in its dealing with the indians there ensued on the part of the latter a reversion to a more barbarous type than had before been prevalent nor was this strange for the necessities under which he found himself drove the indian backward into barbarism the influence of fire-water upon the character of the red man has been often expiated upon but this was in truth but a small factor in the sum of the general result a conquered race driven from its strongholds into the primitive life of savagery to find means of sustenance will always relapse in a state of barbarism history is not wanting in examples of this truth it was thus with the indians of north america though the process was gradual it was none the less sure they found themselves involved in an unending contest for actual existence and such a state is highly inimical to development along upward-tending lines, as has been inevitably the case in similar instances they retrograded. It is to this cause, never perhaps sufficiently considered in studies of the Indian nature, that must be referred much that would otherwise appear inexplicable even though the early colonists were as a rule ill-disposed toward the indians as was befitting those who desired a pretext for wholesale robbery of territory yet their narratives stand in sharp contrast to the tales of aberrant nature as we have them of latter date and in still greater contrast to our present knowledge instead of the progress from which one might look if he should be of those who are convinced of the admirable effects of the introduction of our civilization there was steady retrogression the early colonists found a species of civilization however crude but it did not advance or even continue the indians of the east of course felt the effect of the influx of white men long before their brethren of the west and we will first glance at the effect here upon the status of woman from the new conditions while before the coming of the whites 
there was doubtless frequent warfare among the red men and while the men were preeminently warriors yet warfare was not their normal state tribal feuds there were in plenty and these ever and again broke out into strife but as a rule the tribes lived in general amity and not infrequently as in the case of the iroquois or five nations there were treaties of alliance and support with the evolution and progress of the new conditions however the indian found himself in the ishmael indeed not only were tribal jealousies and feuds augmented but the red men became again and again involved in the wars of the whites so that strife became their constant condition of existence battling for very life and in their bewilderment and lack of racial organization often turning their weapons against each other instead of the common foe the indians were soon reduced to the condition of mere wandering and militant tribes their culture forgotten and indeed inapplicable to the changed conditions in this state of affairs all that was not strictly military became worthless and so woman save as leader or amazon lost her rightful position in indian society she now became indeed a mere chattel a slave even a detriment however necessarily tolerated she was useful in producing warriors and in ministering to their physical needs but there her function ceased though in rare instances as in the case of catherine montour a woman might be heard at the council fire this was regarded as a survival of custom decidedly more honored in the breach than the observance from a state of at least partial equality with the men she was soon by the altered circumstances of her race reduced to a condition of abject slavery and degradation the changed conditions were powerful over the nature as well of the status of the indian woman the colonists always insisted most strenuously upon the natural cruelty of the indians but we must remember that this was not a quality confined to barbarism since even in the days of the first colonists the inquisition was an established institution while the tortures practised in england during the reign of good queen bess might have seemed to the most enthusiastic indian warrior too cruel to be used by him on his worst enemy there can however be no question that the indians like so many other primitive peoples delighted in the torture of their foes though they did not emulate their white fellows by torturing a man because he happened to differ from them in a matter of theory now it has been seen in the case of pocahontas that it was custom of the women to interfere to save the lives of prisoners and the existence of such well-defined custom argues a certain tender-heartedness among the women under the new conditions of constant strife however this quality of mercy became a thing of the past it is the nature of woman to be enthusiastic in evil as in good and it soon came about that it was the women of the indians who were the most bloodthirsty and cruel of their race it was they who heaped the foulest insults upon a captive enemy who most delighted in the terrible torture of that foe who were best pleased if his agony extorted from him the tribute of a groan 
this indulgence in the most depraved instincts of the animal nature of course reacted the women of the amaranth lost all the distinctive feminine characteristics that they had ever possessed and with them even their slight influence upon the men of their race these saw in their women the evidence of a lower nature than their own instead of one higher and so they calmly and justly relegated those who were developing toward animalism to the level of an animal the rule was not invariable but it was general there still remained a few mothers in israel whom by force of character maintained some influence in their tribes but as a rule the squaw was a mere beast of burden a mere breeder of sinners the facility and adaptation to conditions which has always been one of women's prominent traits had proved fatal to the status and nature of the amaranth woman there were some notable exceptions in the long seminole war the indians were led by a remarkable man named osceola he was a half-breed the son of an indian woman by a white named powell but osceola though reared amid the environment of caucasian civilization never acknowledged any relationship to the whites the seminoles preserved the gentile system in which the child followed the fortunes of its mother and osceola acknowledged none but indian racial laws of his mother but little is known but it is certain that she was a woman of stern and decided character that she accepted the benefits of white civilization without admitting any gratitude therefore and that she instilled into her great son the principles which had come down to her from her ancestors she possessed great influence with her race as much for her powers of intellect as for her education for she was excellently taught and culture and it's probable that her influence was paramount in the selection of her son as one of the chiefs of his nation after his rise to fame we hear no more of her but that she was a power in her day and way cannot be doubted this was a comparatively late date an instance in the last that we find of an indian woman exerting decided influence within her tribe long before the dawn of the last century the aboriginal woman had lost all little power that had once been hers that this loss was largely due to her own failure to advance and her consequent retrogression we have already seen but circumstances were also largely responsible for the lapse of feminine prestige it may be that one of the causes for the lost influence of women among the indian tribes was the lowering of the standard of morality this is a matter upon which it is difficult to pronounce since morality always comparative in its standards and to be judged only by the racial creeds which govern it in local applications was peculiarly variant among the indian tribes of north america judged by the rules of modern civilization it might be broadly stated that morality was always at a very low ebb among the amaranths but such a statement would be entirely unwarranted by the true laws of morality polygamy for example is by modern white races held to be immoral but it was a very common custom among the amaranths and that which is sanctioned by custom 
is assuredly not immoral, though it may be counted unmoral. Again, as already noted, there were tribes among which the exchange of wives, temporarily or permanently, was held to be entirely legitimate, and while such a custom is very far from being in accord with Caucasian standards, it is the custom only, and not the practisers thereof, which is to be blamed by the just moralist. On the other hand, it may be set down as a rule of Indian social life that adultery was very severely punished. Even here the point of view was not invariable, some tribes holding the man more guilty, while others visited punishment chiefly or entirely upon the woman. But the sentiment concerning the crime in the abstract was almost universal. It is very probable, though no authority can be found for the statement, that it was among those tribes where the descent was in the male line that the woman was held chiefly criminal in adultery, since thus the purity of descent was contaminated and diverted, while among those nations where descent was in the female line, the woman was held less guilty than he who shared her crime. However this may be, there is too much confusion of statement, as well as too many diverse laws, for us safely to generalize in the matter. Certain it is that adultery was in general looked upon as a heinous crime, usually to be visited with death as its penalty. Yet, with all the strictness regarding the sanctity of the marriage tie, where not abrogated by consent, there was among many of the tribes of the West a singular lack of respect for female purity in general. In more than one tribe, the unmarried women were practically held in common by the unmarried men, though immediately upon marriage the former became strangers to all but their husbands. Here are contradictions in theory as well as practice, but such contradictions are invariably to be found among primitive peoples, nor can the highest civilization yet known boast entire freedom from them. While upon the subject of morality it may be well to glance at the aboriginal customs concerning divorce, as always with any inclusive statement, must be prefaced by the warning that the generalization is impossible of application to all the nations of the North America. Only a few very broad rules can be laid down, and these are tried by many exceptions. It may be stated, as one of these rules, that divorce was general among the Amorans. As is usually the case where polygamy prevails, divorce was almost invariably at the discretion of the husband. But this rule knew some remarkable exceptions, as among the Pueblo Indians, where because of the status of the husband as the perpetual guest of his wife, divorce was chiefly in the discretion of the woman. It is, however, safe to lay down the general rule that divorce was at the discretion of the husband, and rarely needed more than the expression of his wish to become effective and legal. This facility of divorce, of course, made for immorality, as at present understood, since it created a marriage little more than a state of concubinage, where the concubine could be cast off at will and made over to another master, so that the marriage relation lacked the continuity which is its most essential feature 
but as a matter of fact the practice of divorce was uncommon among most of the amaranth tribes whether this was because of the public sentiment overriding the customary law as is often the case among people where law is entirely of custom and not of legislation or whether the very lack of romantic affection in most marriages among the indians acted as a safeguard against satiety and disgust or whether there were other effective but unconjecturable reasons cannot be known but the fact remains that divorce though easy of accomplishment was of rare practice among the american indians as a race thus even though it be contrary to the general judgment it appears that we should be justified in pronouncing the morality of the indian race judged by their standards and not by those of our civilization to have been of at least average excellence with the coming of the white men however the state of affairs altered rapidly for the worse stern moralists as the puritans may have been in theory they were not always so in practice and antinomianism at one time so prevalent among them may have had much for which to answer if the cold puritans were not guiltless in this wise what could be expected from the cavaliers or the warm-blooded sons of france the theory of king james and his counsellors that marriages with indian maidens would be desirable was put into at least semi-practice in many of the colonies and the relations thus established were not continued strictly under the rose the consequence of this immorality on the part of the caucasians who were held at first by the indians as a superior race in all ways reacted upon the aboriginal thought and the standard of morality became lowered among the redskins particularly among their women here also we find a cause of the retrogression of the indian woman in all ways it is however a curious fact that in one instance white immorality was the cause of a great and lasting benefit to a white nation after the occupation of north america by the english and french had become a settled fact and while there was yet dispute between the two nations for dominance on the continent there arose among the indians a man of wonderful ability and wide influence over his race he was an ottawa pontiac by name and though by right chief of only his tribe he had before long brought many other tribes to acknowledge him as their head soon after the defeat of the french on the plains of abraham the english took possession of detroit until then held by the french and the indians in the vicinity soon found cause to complain most bitterly of the change in the masters of the region pontiac assembled the neighboring tribes and proposed to drive the english from the country he believed and not impossibly with reason that if the british were dealt a severe blow by the indians the french notwithstanding their recent discomfiture the new treaty of peace would finish the work and as a preliminary step he proposed to capture detroit from which its position was of the first importance to the holding of the region of the northwest it must be remembered that at the time detroit was a fort and not a city and pontiac saw that his best chance was to capture it by stratagem 
the indians were normally at peace with the english but several other tribes among them the ojibwa and the wyandots assented to the scheme proposed by pontiac and assembled before detroit it was pontiac's plan to propose to major gladwin in command at detroit a meeting inside the fort where a belt of wampum a sign of amity should be presented by the chief and everything done that might be promoting friendly relations suspecting nothing gladwin assented and pontiac's scheme seemed of sure fruition it chanced however that among the ojibwa was a beautiful girl named catherine and that she came under the notice of gladwin he was enamoured of her beauty and proposed to her to become his mistress and she honoured by the notice of the handsome englishman yielded to his desire it would seem that at first the girl did not know that evil threatened the british but one evening when she came to the fort to visit her lover she was noticed by him to be absent and sad at first she would not tell him the reason of her grief but at last urged by her love to treachery to her own people she told him that the indians had been engaged in filing off the barrels of their rifles so that they could conceal these weapons beneath their cloaks and that the next day when the peace conference was to be held the presentation by pontiac of the belt of wampum was to be the signal for the armed warriors to rise up upon the unsuspecting and weaponless officers in a massacre which should become general when the gates of the fort had been seized by those deputed for the purpose gladwin was not the man to neglect such a warning and the next day when pontiac surrounded by his apparently peaceful but really armed warriors was about to hand the wampum belt to gladwin a drum beat the doors of the council chamber were thrown open and there appeared at every entrance a file of soldiers with levelled muskets while in the streets was heard the tramp of marching men hurriedly assembling at the point of danger pontiac saw that he was betrayed and with quick presence of mind concluded a speech with some words of friendship and sat down without having made the intended signal but gladwin less tactful than the indian boldly accused the latter of treachery and dared him to do his worst he did not however take the obvious course of securing the person of pontiac who was allowed to depart and who at once began a siege which for vigour and ability is hardly surpassed in the annals even of civilised warfare the narrative of the siege of detroit and the fate of the brave and able chief who conducted it have no connection with the subject of this work but the incident of the preservation of the fort from pontiac's ingenious plot is germane to the matter at hand had the indians been successful in their scheme it is not at all impossible that france would have made another attempt to maintain her footing in north america and thus it might be said with some show of reason that gladwin's immorality was the cause of the consummation of british dominance in north america and that an obscure indian girl saved for england a possession which that country had bought at the price of some of her noblest blood but the sentiment that brought about the preservation of the defenders of detroit and thus perhaps determined the british title to dominance was not the inspiration that led another indian woman 
to direct the course of the white man in America, and in so doing to contribute largely to the work of subjugating the continent to his race. Sacagawea, the bird woman, born in the mountain region, dwelt by the Shoshone, had been made captive when a child by the Blackfeet, the foes of her people, and by them sold into slavery. Her master and husband was Chabonneau, a French wanderer among the Indians. When Lewis and Clark, on their famous expedition, reached the Mandan villages, they found there the Frenchman and his Indian squaw, now a girl of sixteen, and hired them as interpreters and guides. With her lately-born papoose strapped to her back, this little woman's native dexterity proved invaluable to the explorers as they journeyed along the upper Missouri in their canoes, across the divide and into the mountains, which were her native home, the party moved, ever helped and encouraged by Sacagawea. Here, at length, difficulties seemingly too great to overcome faced the explorers, but the little squaw, recognizing in a valley they had reached the home from which she had been taken five years earlier, saved the turning back of the expedition. At last she was with her long-lost tribeswomen, and winning these, their warriors were soon gathered about her. To them she spoke of the good intentions of the white men, and her influence soon established friendship between the explorers and the Shoshone, and their safe conduct through the territory of the tribes was now assured and their way led to the Pacific. Many incidents are told of the bird women's skill, bravery, and fidelity during the long journey from the home of the Mandans to the shore of the Pacific and back to the point of starting. Of these mention may be made her saving the valuable records and instruments of the explorers, of her sacrifice of a prized ornament to enable Lewis to secure a much-desired otter-skin, and of her giving to her hungry captain the piece of bread treasured to appease the hunger of her babe in an emergency. These traits of Sacagawea serve to present her of a woman of eminent personal worth, for much more than the acquired skill of her race, or the energy born of a desire to revisit her childhood home, is transparent in her actions on this memorable journey. Though in her social relation she held a degraded position, she displayed characteristics which place her in a lofty position as to qualities of mind and heart. Unconscious she was, of course, of the vast results which were to follow the expedition, to the success of which she so largely contributed, yet she accepted the mission of her captains and loyally furthered its accomplishment. Before closing this brief and imperfect attempt to define the primitive and modified status of the amaranth woman, it is necessary that the sketch may have as much completeness as is possible to cast a hurried glance at the present conditions of the women of the Indian tribes that remain to us. While the first effects of the impinging civilization were most deleterious to the status and nature of the aboriginal woman, there came a time when, under conditions of comparative peace, there was ampler opportunity for the best of that civilization to prove that it really had a message for red men and women as well as white, though its first words had been so marred in the saying. 
it would not comport with tenderness for the good name of our country to set forth the wrongs suffered by the indians at the hands of those who assumed a higher place in the scale of race the story is written large for all those who care to read beneath the combined influences of tyranny treachery knavery and every other crime that the whites could commit against them together with the degrading effects of the existence which was forced on them and the pernicious results of the introduction of drunkenness as a racial vice the indians went from bad to worse until in the majority of the cases they became little better than mere savages in this retrogression the status of the indian woman participated until in almost every tribe within the boundaries of our country she was reduced to the state of the merest beast of burden her lot became harder and harder she was not even ameliorated by the consolations of any religious creed that held promise of better things to come at last the very slowly and very late in the history of the amorins there dawned a day when equity began to take some place in our dealings with our red brethren when there began some organized effort to show them that white civilization held some benefits even for them and that christianity was something more than a theory even then the efforts to improve the condition of the indians were chiefly directed towards the education of the youths for the girls and women there was but little consideration shown at length however this field also was entered by some devoted men and women especially the latter and the indian woman with as much wonder as joy found that she too was regarded as something better than a slave and a brute that she too was held as being worthy of education and of the influences of refinement even yet this message has not yet been borne to the majority of women of the tribes at least in effective manner but the leaven has been placed in the lump at first the reclamation of the indian woman from the degradation into which she had fallen was a disheartening work by long years of maltreatment and neglect she had been rendered almost incapable of understanding that any other lot was possible for her in many cases her racial instincts and inherited education revolted against the new order of things with which was proposed to her with the apathy and degradation peculiar to primitive peoples the indian woman turned her face from civilization and would have none of it she was not of it and it was not for her but a change of plan resulted in at least partial success the attempt to teach and refine the elder women the women who had years of experience of their racial conditions as a barrier to the appreciation of different order of things was largely abandoned and the efforts towards amelioration were put forth for the education of the younger women even so the effort has not yet met with satisfying success but its results bear promise of the future yet the outlook is not bright for the conditions which confront the indian woman are still not favorable for the material betterment of her lot those who generalize with insufficient grasp of the premises are fond of saying that the indian cannot bear civilization that it is destructive to its health and morals 
but they forget that no race has ever become suddenly civilized, even under the most favorable auspices. There's always the past history of that race as a controlling influence in the result, physical and social traditions that must be reckoned with before the race can fully adapt itself to its new conditions and make the best of them. Unfortunately, all these traditions among the Amerind peoples are highly unfavorable to their acceptance of the civilization peculiar to the environment into which they have been forcibly brought, and this fact, together with the still persistent injustice of treatment, which is meted out to them, has resulted in the physical deterioration of their race, until there now looms near the threat of extinction. In these racial conditions, the Indian woman, of course, participates, and she has the further disadvantage of being compelled, in order to be able to make her own the best condition that is offered her, to effect a total change in her social relations with her own people. The Indian warrior can perhaps be brought to understand that for him better conditions are possible than those which have been his lot in the times past but it is well nigh impracticable for him to grasp the truth that it is possible for his slave his chattel his beast of burden to be aught to be herself or to him than that which she had been almost for a time immemorial the tradition that woman is an inferior being has become so deeply merged into all his conceptions of sociology that he cannot rid himself of it, and the woman is perforce compelled to accept this tradition, since she cannot traverse it by any appeal that he could understand. Therefore, it would seem that the future of the Indian woman is not bright. Before she can shake herself free from the trammels of tradition, and even superstition which now hold her down, it is probable that her race will have become practically extinct. Yet before that catastrophe, it may well be that her lot will have been ameliorated, that she will have emerged from the degradation which even now is the condition of the greater part of her race and sex, and that she will at least have regained the status which was hers before the encroachments of a new and more powerful civilization than that which she knew altered for the worse every condition of her existence even this is the less to be hoped for in the eastern tribes which were mostly cultured in nearly all respects and have now fallen by the wayside in nearly all instances while the remnants of the western nations are less adapted to the reception of the higher conditions since they have behind them fewer no traditions which make the best tendencies in this wise none can safely prophesy this matter but while hope is always permissible it would be rash oracle who would foretell the establishment of the aberrant woman upon a plane befitting her sex or even the best traditions of her race End of chapter one part b